0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thank you for joining us again today, everybody. I have some podcast news. You can now get our episodes on Google Play. So if that makes it easier for you or someone you know to listen to The Next Track, there's some good news. We're up on Google Play, and there will be a link in the show notes. This is episode number 90 of The Next Track, and joining us today via Skype is journalist Liz Pelly, who has recently done some pretty thorough reporting about some of the ways Spotify, and ostensibly streaming services in general, are impacting the music industry, the labels, the artists themselves, and us as music consumers. Liz, first, it's great to meet you, and thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Good morning, Liz. We spotted
1: an article that you wrote for The Baffler a couple of weeks ago called The Problem with Music. and the subheader is Spotify's bid to remodel an industry. And you just give a a wonderful analysis of what's going on with Spotify, how this is changing the music industry. Where do we even begin? Spotify is, to quote you, you say, to understand the danger Spotify poses to the music industry and to music itself, you first have to dig beneath the user experience and examine its algorithmic schemes. That's a pretty loaded word, danger.
2: Well, I guess something to start might be just to point out that this article sort of came about mostly from just conversations that I'd had over the past year or so with people who make music or work in music. These conversations about Spotify, I feel like at every turn, I, I was hearing people talking about the way that this was changing, the way that they did business or the way that they released music um, or, you know, just kind of like talking about this all-encompassing way that this one platform had been affecting their lives or, you um, you know the record labels that they ran, or the way that they were expected to do their album rollout, um, and just it just seemed like everyone was talking about it. So it, it seemed like a big thing that had to be um, addressed, and I got really interested in in writing about it based on that. But also um, when I found out about the the major label playlist brands, um, and I thought that I, that kind of made me, you know, that that intrigued me, and I. To me, that was this the signal that because, you know, I'd always heard that Spotify was very influenced by all of the major record labels. But um, it was kind of this overwhelming thing where do you even start. Like, I don't know. So for me, like that was where I started. I started by investigating that a little bit for this article last year called The Secret Lives of Playlists.
1: Right. And that was in June on what? And we were going to mention that one as well. And that's some stunning stuff for, for both of us. Doug and I are both Apple Music users, so we don't see the same type of things.
2: Well, I believe that some of this similar stuff exists on Apple Music, too, but I haven't investigated it as much. So I'm it
1: does, to- but it's not promoted as aggressively as it is on Spotify. I think that's one of the biggest differences.
2: Yeah, I, I find it kind of troubling when people, when I, would, you know, I'll publish these articles and people are like, oh, well, I use Apple Music. So this doesn't relate to me or something.
1: Oh, sure. No, we're not. We're not saying it doesn't relate. We're just saying that we don't see it the same way. Um, Spotify is only selling Spotify, whereas Apple is selling iPhones and they don't even need to make a profit on Apple Music. So obviously the business model is different.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a concern. Anyway, so so I was researching the major label playlist brands and then that kind of opened my eyes up to all of the different ways that Spotify is influenced by major record labels. But then from talking to people who work at major record labels, I learned a little bit more about, um, you know, all of the curator gatekeepers that are employed at Spotify and how their interests um, make the, you know, the platform pretty and accessible to independent artists. Since then, I started learning more about the different algorithmic playlists on Spotify. And these are all Concerns that are all equally worth diving into. So, for this article for the Baffler, I just kind of tried to open up all of these different um, conversations. You know, the piece was actually came from ideas for five different articles that I eventually ended up just sort of like putting into one because they. All were deserving of conversation. I thought.
0: You know, it really could have been five articles, but it's great that you put it all into one piece. There are just so many factors and dynamics at play.
1: It is quite a complex situation. On the one hand, as you say, it's the major labels who are controlling this, in part because they have large investments in Spotify, in part because they own these companies that make the playlists that are obviously touting their music, and so this, as you said, it shuts out indie artists, but. It really skews the whole thing. When, when streaming started, everyone was talking about music discovery and the so-called mythical long tail that never really existed, and how everyone would be able to listen to exactly the music they want. But it really comes down to, and again, I'm quoting from your article, Spotify's obsession with mood and activity-based playlists has contributed to all music becoming more like Muzak. And I, I think, you know, we've we've discussed streaming music here on the show a number of times, and and we both sort of feel that the majority of people just listen to music as wallpaper or Muzak and don't really even care that much.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, a lot of people will respond and say, oh, well, that's always existed. You've always had commercial radio or you've always had lean back listeners or you've always had people who weren't super invested and they just listen to whatever's around. But I feel like this is the first time where we're seeing... A system that so many artists are beholden to, exacerbating this type of listening. Um, You know, where even your independent artists, um, who normally would be able to opt out of these types of um, systems, are are suddenly expected to participate in them. um, In these types of dynamics, that maybe at one point were you know only something that top forty radio really describes subscribe to.
1: In your article about playlists, you mentioned the fact that a number of artists suddenly discover that they are in a branded playlist and that they're not really happy about this. And on the one hand, you would think that the artist would be happy because, let's say, a Nike playlist means that they're going to get a lot more plays. But on the other hand, there's this sort of subtle suggestion that the band is sponsored by Nike or that the band is beholden to Nike. Do do they have absolutely no way of getting out of that?
2: Uh, I'm actually not sure. I, I think that probably if they really wanted to get out of the playlists, they could. But I think it's kind of more about the these brands now having ways where they can align themselves as artists or where they can sort of, like, capitalize on the cool factor of having these playlists that, quote, unquote, help them connect with their listeners. And they're using music for these purposes without there being any sort of compensation. Where in the past, maybe an artist if they were doing some sort of brand partnership or some sort of commercial, you know, they would get paid a ton of money. And that was not like a huge way that artists made a living, but definitely a part of the piece of the puzzle. And now in a streaming environment where, um, you know, artists are making their careers by piecing together so many of these smaller revenue streams. And I feel like, you know, as in the article, I spoke with um, Kevin Erickson from the Future of Music Coalition about this idea that, um, if corporations and brands can find ways to align themselves with music without going through the trouble of paying artists all that money, like what do you think they're going to do? They're going to latch on to these ways to align themselves with music that don't involve higher compensation. So in a way, it's sort of another one of the ways that streaming services are undercutting revenue streams for artists, which they're also doing Um, in other ways, too.
1: Well, this is one of the biggest problems, and and we've talked to a number of people, both at record labels and musicians, who say that they just can't afford to live anymore on what they're getting from streaming. In last week's episode, we talked to James Jackson Toth about an experiment he wanted to do to listen to one record a week. It lasted three days. But in the discussion, it was interesting to, to see how people's consumption of music is changing, that people aren't buying music any more, and there's a whole generation now that won't even know what it means to buy an album and take it home and to live with it for a week. Instead, Spotify is undercutting the amount that anyone would have gotten from an album. Although I, I think just a couple days ago, uh, I, I guess this is a, a decision in Congress that songwriter compensation is going up substantially, but performance compensation is is not, and label compensation is not. So the the whole thing has gotten to a point where. As you said, it's the major labels who are controlling this, and yet their artists aren't getting enough money to eventually survive over the long term. And it's hard to think how the major labels expect this to be viable in the future.
2: It almost seems like a sort of power struggle between the group that used to be the most powerful source in the music industry and this like new center of power that is rising, where it, it seems like they're really working together, but it's hard to tell like the extent to which... They are. To me, it's just like, it seems like Spotify is definitely emerging as the one of the m- most powerful new forces in music. And obviously, major labels have an imbalance of influence over things like the music that ends up on the front page of Browse, what you see in New Music Friday, like partnerships with Spotify and stuff like that. Um, owning part of it, probably some sorts of marketing deals like i remember at one point i read that one of the major labels had taken a lower royalty rate in exchange for having more control over how their music was visible on the platform or something like that um so i feel like in those situations you can you can tell what we're like it's a time where i think people are like negotiating like what is more meaningful to have higher royalty rates or to have more visibility on the front page of spotify like it seems like people don't even maybe don't even really know the answer to that. Well,
1: the major labels do have equity in spotify and yeah. and some people have suggested that their goal is to make Spotify worth as much as possible, get an iPO, cash in on it, and then just let the chips fall where they do.
2: Yeah, that would also be a reality that would make sense.
1: Well, the record labels are run by bean counters more and more these days. Uh-huh. I used Spotify in the early days, in fact, before it got to the u s and i never it never really clicked to me because I have a very large music library, and I've been buying records for more than forty years. One thing I liked back then was that user playlists were shared, and they would be you could subscribe to playlists and all that. We didn't have these playlist company playlists. What are these companies called? Give me some names, Doug
0: Well, the ones that Liz primarily talks about are the ones that are owned by the big three um Topsify is owned by Warner. Filter is owned by Sony and Dixter is owned by Universal.
2: Undoubtedly, the most influential playlists on Spotify are the ones curated by their in-house curation team. So those are definitely the ones that are having like the biggest influence over the platform. They're like in-house curators and then also their um, algorithmically created Discover tools. and But then there's also these things called Filter, here and Topsify, owned by the major labels, that, as I understand it, were um, independent companies that were early on the platform and kind of developed a following. And then um, at a certain point, the major labels purchased them individually um, so that they could sort of like keep up. Um, and from talking to people who work at major labels, you know, um, I learned that. Maybe those playlists, in particular, because they might not have an enormous amount of visibility on the platform, you know there if you go on the browse page and you click on a genre tag and you scroll halfway down, you'll start seeing them. But because they've been on the platform for so long and they have a lot of followers, if major labels plug their artists into those playlists, they can start to sort of see their artists popping up on the algorithmic playlists and like the discover weeklies and release radars and stuff like that. And then they'll have their artists share. On social media, their own playlists. So sometimes you'll see major label artists on social media, and they're sharing a filter, Digster, top five playlist, or whatever label they're on. And it seems like it's sort of like to drive people to their own curated playlists where they have complete control over them. They literally, you know, they they create those playlists. But then it's also just sort of like play the algorithm a little bit. It seems like, and um, it's interesting also to like think about how all of the, you know, Spotify curated playlists themselves, how the interests of Spotify and their label partnerships that end up on those playlists might then also be impacting things like Discovered Weekly and stuff, because those are based on, you know, lots of factors, but some of them are also like, what other playlists are these songs on? Who's listening to who listens to music that you like that's also listening to, you know, what are they also listening to? And and if people are mostly listening to Spotify curated playlists, then obviously those are going to have a big impact on what you see on the Discover feed. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about music consumption and experimenting with different ways of listening and people not knowing the, you know, the feeling of having a record and taking it home. And I definitely agree that that's like one of the biggest things that we're losing out on in this environment is the sense of connection that people feel with the music that they're listening to and the artists that they're a fan of and the way that concepts like fandom and music appreciation in general are sort of watered down by this type of environment. And also what you're saying about user-generated playlists, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is sort of the way this platform just affects like very basic important things, like the way that community forms around music, you're not really interacting with your friends on a platform like Spotify, you're not, and not who's to say what, you know, interacting with other people online even amounts to on any platform, but the fact that listening to music on Spotify sometimes can feel like a sort of isolating experience or something, so you're not really seeing playlists your friends are sharing or music that other people like, it's all just, you know, built around this magic of Spotify as this sort of product that you're consuming. Um, And uh, that's not really what has historically been meaningful about music sharing and discovery and things like that. Yeah,
1: music is the ultimate word of mouth. You get a new record and you play it for your friends or you go to your computer or your iPhone or whatever and you play it for your friends. It's true that this kind of builds a wall between the music discovery and listening and the music sharing bit. Again, in last week's episode, James Jackson Toth said he works part-time in a record store and he sees more and more young people come in with earbuds in their ears. Now, I had a period of my life that was sort of like that movie High Fidelity when I hung out in a record store and it was like the greatest thing in the world that you could go in there and someone would pull out some new records and play them and you'd listen to them and we'd talk about them and we'd share them. and I can't imagine going into a record store and not wanting to hear what the record store is playing.
2: For sure. And even, you know, myself, like being involved in college radio was a huge part of my life and college experience and listening to other college radio shows. And I can't imagine how I would have ever discovered a lot of the music that made a big impact on me if it wasn't for things like listening to independent radio shows. And if those sorts of types of Um, You know, and college radio stations are also a huge way of forming community around music. And if those types of platforms are being replaced by things like Spotify, like how are people going to find each other? Or like you're saying, the, the conversations you have in record shops and stuff like these types of new platforms don't even begin to replace those sorts of interactions, you
1: know? Yeah, I've always been surprised that Spotify hasn't tried to really develop that. Apple did some years ago with something called Ping that they called a music social network or social music network. And it was a, a disaster. It really didn't understand how social networking works. And currently on Apple Music, you can follow someone to see what they're listening to. And I follow a bunch of people and it really doesn't help me that much to see what, you know, 10 or 20 people are listening to because there is no discussion. Someone in my list listened to Lana Del Rey, someone else, Greta Van Fleet. Someone listened to the Rolling Stones' Love You Live. And I don't know, let's see, Phil Schiller was listening to Air Drummer, a playlist. So I know that these people are listening, but I can't really send them a message to say, well, did you like that album? It lacks that. So it's a a one-way thing, isn't it? It's not, it doesn't inspire any interaction.
2: To me, the only one that I think successfully gives me recommendations of my friends are listening to is Bandcamp, because on Bandcamp, you can follow, you know, friends and different fan pages and stuff. And then when people buy a record, it'll email you and say, oh, like, this is who of your friends bought records this week. So I know that they must have really liked it if they they paid for it. Um, And then, you know, everything that you buy gets added to your collection. And yeah, I feel like that's like one platform where i feel like i i do find out about new stuff
0: so how much effort are labels putting into playlists i mean it almost seems like they're marketing playlists to potential followers as much as they might market a physical album or download to potential customers
2: i'm not sure if labels are investing marketing resources but i do see labels sharing playlists pretty often like on social media labels will post playlists of their upcoming releases or different themed playlists and things like that, which I assume are just them trying to get ears on their new releases in whatever ways they can. I feel like a lot of, a lot of independent labels feel like it's a disservice to their artists to not try to play this game a little bit, um, even if it's not something they, they fully believe in as a sustainable model. Um, I had a conver- I've had conversations with people who are working on or currently in the state of trying to like think on alternatives to this or trying to currently like weighing the pros and cons of participating in such um, platforms. And I think, I think it's a moment where people are trying to simultaneously think about alternatives while also not failing their artists by not, at least trying and seeing if it it works, and in some ways trying new things or whatever. So um, that's at least the perception that I I've gained from observing and and talking with people.
1: Do record labels have to pay to get a better exposure on Spotify, like an end cap in a supermarket?
2: I haven't heard of any independent labels even having that sort of option. Like I don't I don't. I don't know about that. Um, I know that, you know, there is this, in terms of independent labels, there is like this independent um, label trade group called Merlin, um, which represents a kind of the more like major independent labels and they have their own negotiations and contracts with Spotify as well, similar, not, not I doubt it would be too similar to the independent labels contracts, but you know, in the same way that they have like agreements and contracts. Um, I do remember that uh, when I was researching the Secret Lives of Playlists, so learning that, um, you know, major labels um, in their deals, they had um, like free advertising packages sort of on the platform. So they, if you have the um, the free version of Spotify, you, if you would sometimes in the advertising space, see advertisements for new records that were coming out, like a new, you know, Ed Sheeran record or something like big, Big releases. Um, And then I also remember, I haven't seen this as much recently. I don't know if they did away with it or not, but at least last year I would also see. um, So I have the paid version of Spotify, but even sometimes I was seeing these things where it said announcement and then it was, uh, you know, a block of filter playlists or a block of Topsify playlists. And if you didn't know at the time, I think that more people didn't know about the, these different types of playlist brands. Um, so, you know, you could easily see that and not know that this was actually some major label marketing space, um, right on the front page when you log in. So that's definitely something that I, I used to notice more, but I haven't really noticed that as much anymore. Um, unfortunately, since I don't have the free version of Spotify, I don't, See the advertisements. Actually, so I've been thinking about maybe like going back to it,
1: or create a second account.
2: Yeah, or having a second account or something like that, um, just to also see what the advertisements look like firsthand more often.
1: One real question is is how Spotify is going to be able to compete in the future? Because again, Spotify only sells Spotify, and Apple doesn't need to make a profit on Apple Music. And while Spotify has. Far more paid users than Apple does. Apple's growing.
0: Well, one of the things I was wondering about the future is if Spotify wants to just cut out the middleman, the labels, and behave more like a label itself. You know, like like producing their own content, like the video streamers do.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's something to be like weary about with all all streaming services. Um, is this idea that they might? You know, like I think it was um, Google had set up something called. I think it was called Alphabet Artist Services. So you you might see streaming services setting up these sort of companies that artists can work with to get their music straight on the platforms and then do marketing around it or something. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw more artists opting to just, instead of working labels, to work with management that would you know help them with their partnerships with these streaming services um, or tech companies in general.
1: But they'd have to be the biggest artists that have already proven that they're viable and that already have a fan base. I can't see Spotify doing like Netflix originals from unsigned bands.
2: I mean, they already do have this thing called Rise, which is sort of their like emerging artist program where they named these four artists who already, I believe, had some sort of major label connections, but they they sort of. It was kind of like, to me, reminded me of a combination between like Spotify's idea of like either a development deal or it almost had kind of like an American Idol vibe to it or something. It was like Spotify saying these are four rising stars and they're part of our Rise program or whatever. Like it was their like emerging artists thing. So I could see in the future them... Um doing some sort of like development deal with artists where they would sign contracts with them to put their music straight onto streaming services and yeah, I don't know like exactly what it what it would look like, but it seems to and,
1: and as with American Idol, they would take a bigger cut as producers,
2: yeah, I'm sure um yeah, I don't know if maybe American Idol is like. The, the wrong comparison, but that's just like the vibe that I got when I was looking at
1: it. Well, it is in the sense that American Idol does have these contracts with the people who are on the show that if they do win, or even if they don't, they get, they get to control their career for a certain number of years. And it's, of course, interesting to Spotify to try and build a band when they're getting 20% instead of 10% or whatever they're making on top of the band. But, of course, the question is, how long can they do that? How many bands can they do that? How long does it take to build an artist? How quickly do people get tired of the artist unless the artist really becomes very popular? It doesn't seem like... In music, it seems a lot different from, say, movies, where a movie is a one-off, whereas music, you're building an artist over a certain amount of time, hopefully more than one album. So it seems like it is a different concept of development.
2: Yeah that is unless they get people hooked on things like playlists and they have loyalty around a playlist instead of around an artist or an album. Um, and they, you know, market that more. And that becomes the focus of what people get excited about on a platform like Spotify. Um, Cause you definitely do see them investing a lot of like marketing resources around their playlist brands. And you also do see things like, you know, there's this whole, controversy this is like kind of changing the subject a little bit but just in terms of like spotify's investment or non-investment in artists or kind of like creating artists in this certain way um you did last year hear about this whole thing where they were taking their popular playlists and both popular tracks they were like hiring session players to sort of create new tracks that sounded like them and then replacing what people were calling the real artists with the fake artists and I, there was a lot of discrepancy. Kind
1: of like Muzak, as you, yeah. the term that you use so ideally.
2: There's definitely like fair discrepancy about whether it's right to call them fake artists or not, because it's not like, you know, a lot of these people are like actual artists, but a lot of them were just using these like one-off names for these tracks. And, um, you know, they were taking those tracks and replacing popular artists with them. So I don't know what the future of uh, that sort of dynamic... Um, on streaming would look like, but it it certainly would be surprising if they stopped doing this.
0: <laughs> I, I think the end result, though, is that ultimately it might not make a difference to some listeners if they know who the artist is or not. I mean, why not use a, a Muzak orchestra to make this content? I mean, for some people, okay, it's not the high-priced boutique wallpaper, but it's Home Depot wallpaper, and it's good enough. It sounds good enough. I, I don't know if I would advocate for this, I mean, and Spotify rightly got nailed for it. But it doesn't surprise me that some smarty pants in the executive suite had a look at some numbers and thought, this might be a good idea.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, Spotify makes money no matter what you listen to, as long as you listen. And even if you don't listen, they still make the money, but they want you they don't care what you listen to. They want to attract you to keep you on Spotify and not switch to another streaming service. And they want you to listen, but it doesn't matter if it's an artist that's negotiated a higher royalty rate than a lower royalty rate.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, to a certain extent, it seems like they want to keep certain labels happy because they might have to because of their contracts or something like that. But at the end of the day, yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like I get the vibe that they don't really care what you listen to as long as you have it playing in the background.
1: It's a commodity to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Spotify doesn't do any live radio like Apple's Beats 1, do they?
2: Um, no, but they do have podcasts and video, but I haven't, I haven't seen anything, any live streaming stuff.
1: And, and I'm not a fan of Beats 1 in particular, but they do have interviews, they have a number of DJs, and that seems to be a more content-driven approach by Apple. I'm surprised Spotify hasn't emulated that.
2: Yeah, they have done some original content, but it's more like, you know, they did this thing called I'm with the band last year, which was their video and music series of artists that were affected by the travel ban. And they'll kind of like create content around certain specific playlists. I'm trying to think, you know, like they'll put original video content into some of their popular playlist brands like rap caviar or rock this or exclusive premieres of videos or something like that. It seems like they're more focused around developing their very popular playlist brands, almost in like what we we're talking about earlier to kind of like create loyalty around those uh, like brand loyalty around those playlists.
1: But what it really comes to is whether people will re up at the end of the month. There has to be something compelling You know, whether or not you're going to watch the next season of House of Cards, there is something on Netflix that will grab you and keep you subscribing. Otherwise, you'll give up. And it's the same on Spotify. I mean, again, it's different because it's music. And for a lot of people, it's wallpaper or music. And and you don't necessarily care that much. But I guess more people are using Spotify in the free version and getting ads if they really don't care. So Spotify needs to find a way to not only keep current customers subscribing, but also to get people to convert from free to paid.
2: Yeah. It's this weird thing where I feel like, you know, ultimately, especially in terms of artist compensation and the royalty rates and are they selling access to every single record or are they selling their discovery products? And I feel like I really do think that most people have Spotify accounts because they want to be able to listen to their music. They want to be able to listen to records that they like. It's like, I don't necessarily know that like people are specifically going there for playlists. Like, I think that people are going there for records and to listen to artists that they already like, maybe to listen to playlists that their favorite artists have made or whatever. But I think that the playlists are kind of like how they hook people once they're there and they are confused for a minute. And they're like, oh, you know, they're almost like distractions or something. When you open the platform, they don't make you think about what you want to go listen to there. You open it and you're like, oh, let me see what's on that click or whatever, because they're right on the front page. and. You'll also start to see sort of like clickbait tendencies with like the front photos and the funny names and stuff like that and the the mood and activity names and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, I don't get the mood and activity playlist. It's like some random person's barbecue playlist is going to be appropriate for a certain number of people having a barbecue, but not for everyone. And their insistence on that Apple Music keeps recommending for me the classical music for elevators playlist. Now, I listen to a lot of classical music, and the last thing I want is classical music for elevators.
2: Yeah, to me, this is just like the ultimate watering down of people's relationship with music to be basing it on moods instead of activities and you know I've definitely read like some counter arguments that there are some people that want to discover new music but they don't know a lot about music and if they know about an activity but they don't know about an artist that, that activity could lead them to new music but to me it's just like completely taking it out of out of context and I feel like if you want it to be based on activities you know you could say this is the this vibe uh I don't know I don't even want to get into that. It's just...
1: Some, someone once said that all you need for a party is two people and a Barry White album. <laughs> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> I, I'm referencing your, your subhead Spotify and Chill in your article, which I guess a lot of people just put on music to accompany them in those intimate moments, and they really don't care what the music is.
2: Yeah, or just, you know, you, you see like so many playlists that are just chill playlists or ambient music or focus. Um but so many chill ones. I was really like struck by that. And it was definitely something that I heard a lot of people talk about. And I feel like the chill playlists are the ultimate distillation of everything that I feel like is so strange about this playlistification of music or something, because like to me, like playlistification of music means songs that can really easily play from one to the other, no matter what album or genre it's coming from or whatever. And I feel like, I'd noticed this trend or I went to also a panel where people were talking about how to get their music on streaming platforms and stuff. And, you know, people from these companies were actually like suggesting that they just like focus on one single and then make like different versions of their song for different playlists or whatever. And wow. Suggesting that they make the piano version, the chill version, this version, that version <laughs> or whatever, because there's so many piano and chill playlists on Spotify. Um, and that, I thought that was really interesting to me because... It seems to be an area where this platform is really affecting the the way that people are, like, you know, making music. It's an example of affecting the way that music is sounding, um, people wanting, you know, striving to make music that fits more into a playlist. Um, and I feel like th- it's an example of how these platforms are not just influencing the way people listen, but also the way people create. So
1: do, do you still buy records?
2: I buy cassettes i have an enormous wow.
1: cassette collection. cassettes what yeah. what cassettes
2: yeah i have an enormous cassette collection and i do i do have records as well but
1: cassettes um, people buy cassettes
2: they do and i think that <laughs> so this you- is
1: beyond vinyl now you're back to cassettes next thing's going to be real to real what is it about the cassette that is all of a sudden popular i mean before the walkman came out i had a walkman sony had something they called the pressman it was a brick-sized cassette recorder with two microphones in it. So left and right channel for journalists to use. And I bought one used. And about a, this was about a year before the Walkman actually came out. So I'm an early adopter of cassettes. But I was so happy when CDs came along and I didn't have to fast forward or rewind anymore.
2: Oh, yeah. I think that for me, I like being able to buy a physical copy of music from an artist that I like, especially if I'm at a show and there's a band on tour and I'm at the merch table. But I... Personally, I can't always drop twenty bucks on a vinyl record, but a lot of fans will have tapes for five, five or seven dollars. And it, for me, it just—I think the reason why I started buying tapes at a certain point was just that it fit my budget more. Um, and uh, and then it just kind of stuck, and cassettes became the thing that I collected. And you know, I would buy a lot of cassettes in in the mail, um, from label tape labels. Um, And, you know, it's a way to support a band on tour, buy something in the mail kind of impulsively without, really, you know, like, I feel like I could take more risks on buying a tape, too. Like, if I I buy a record, that's a record that I know I already like, I think. Um, Whereas a tape, you know, maybe I saw a band live and they seem pretty good and I wanted to support them. Or a label that I, like, put something out and I heard one song from it and I know that I like that band, so I'll just buy that tape. So, I don't know. And I think, you know, I read that cassette sales were up. 35% Thirty-five percent
1: last year, and yeah, I read something about it, and and at the time I just kind of snickered. But I think we're going to have to do a show about this, Doug.
0: Well, I have to say, I I could get behind cassettes. It's tough to argue with cassettes, as you say, they're cheaper retail-wise, but they're um, they're handy. They are portable. They sound pretty good. They're great in cars. Um, I think there might be fewer compromises you'd have to make than with vinyl. I could do cassettes again easily.
1: So what do what do you listen on? Do you, do you have a, a Walkman? Do you have a boombox or do you have an actual stereo cassette deck?
2: I have a boombox, but the boombox is, it's like, you know, right next to my record player and I have it all in the same area in my house. Um, so I listen to, I have a boombox. I have the radio hooked up to it. I can this to the radio if I want to, but, but yeah, boombox. I used to have, I don't, I don't anymore, but I used to have like multiple cassette players throughout my house but I've been meaning to get another one for my kitchen.
1: This feels like a time machine. I have a boombox next to my record player. This is what we used to say 40 years ago.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's a better way of listening to music, so it makes sense, I think. Well,
1: it's 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 an interesting way of listening to music. Yeah. You know, because you can make your own mixtapes, which are sort of playlists, but they're more personal, and you can tape over them and you can tape a record or a CD onto a cassette and you can only tape the songs you want if you don't want the whole album.
2: I should say it's a better way for me to, to me to listen to music. I think everyone's relationship with music is extremely personal and the way that you enjoy listening to music is totally you know based on personal preference and I think like ultimately what this gets down to is that like there can't ever be like one way of listening to music that is expected to be the way that everyone listens to music um, and you know there can't be expected to be one way of distributing and sharing your music that works for everyone. So I feel like things like Spotify, you know, ultimately maybe some artists really like it, but the artist that's not working for shouldn't be expected to have to use this one thing just because it is like amassed, like all of this power in music, or maybe, you know, they'll have their music up there, but it's not necessarily the first thing that they share when their album comes out, you know, maybe they prefer for a few weeks to, Share their bandcamp link or their personal website or their record label's website or something.
1: It's awfully depressing talking about the future of music, especially with what we've seen in the last few years. And again, as Doug and I, both people who grew up with records back in the day, and then tapes, and even we 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 even had eight track tapes. But the change is quite shocking because now what we see again is just a couple of players. And and frankly, Apple could lose money as much as they want to just run Spotify out of business. They wouldn't do it. I'm sure there would be an antitrust issue but they don't need to make a profit. So that means that on the one hand, you have Spotify that does have to make a profit that's owned in part by major record labels and another company that couldn't care less and is just going to do whatever they want, but still has the same amount of power because they probably even have more power in the way that they're distributing and, and showcasing different artists.
2: Yeah, it was pretty interesting to, I don't know if you guys watched the Grammys last night, but it was pretty interesting to see how strong the Apple Music presence was. You know, like every... 10 minutes, they were putting up a things that said, go listen to these artists now on Apple Music. Um, memories like this from the past 60 years uh, only on Apple Music right now. Right, and right. I couldn't help but notice, you know, I like opened Spotify during the Grammys and there was no presence on the front page of Spotify at all. There was, a, there was a playlist that was called Best New Artists and it was just like the best artists of the past year, but it didn't have anything to do with the Grammys, but it was maybe their, their kind of like, Counter playlist or something.
1: Whereas Apple has the 60th Grammy Awards winners playlist on Apple Music, Grammy with the little R in the circle, which means that they've worked out some sort of marketing deal to promote this.
2: Totally. So I think it, I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't necessarily know like what to read into it, but um, it definitely shows like a lot of influence.
1: Well, Liz, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much. Again, you, you're doing great reporting looking into exactly what all this means on the back end. You know, most people listen to this and they just hear music and they don't think about it. Keep up the good work and we're going to be following your stuff. Thanks for joining us. Indeed, thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat with you guys.
0: All right, then we are going to present our next tracks, Kirk. So for my next track this
1: week, I'm going to pick an album that my son recommended to me. It's the new record by Nils Fromm called All Melody. Nils Fromm has previously been a composer of what they're calling neoclassical music, piano music, ambient music, light electronica. And he built a fancy new studio in Berlin, and he made this record in his new studio. And my son said to me the other day, this is a masterpiece. Now, I've only listened to it once so far. I would disagree that it's a masterpiece. I think it's got some very attractive music on it. It goes beyond the piano and electronica. There's some voice. There's some, I think, trumpet. There's a pipe organ. It's someone making music in a studio, which is very different from one particular album, whose name I can't really think of right now, that was based in his living room, that he did a half a dozen songs with someone else in his living room. And so the the atmosphere obviously gave him a, a different sort of control over the music that he makes. It's a 73-minute album, 12 songs, so it's chock full of music. A lot of the songs flow into each other as if he's designed it, gee, as a playlist, maybe that's part of it. But I haven't listened to it much, so I can't say a lot. So Neil's from All Melody, and if you like that sort of electronica, ambient, etc., you're probably going to want to listen to this. Doug, what have you got on?
0: I was somewhat of a 10 years after Alvin Lee fan when I was a teenager. I liked the performance at Woodstock, and from that I bought uh, an album of theirs called Shh spelled S-S-S-S-H. Uh, this next track pick is not that album. My pick is the album I decided to buy next. And like we talked about last week, when you have limited resources, you really have to be very careful about what record you're gonna buy because you're gonna probably keep it. You're gonna and have to learn to love it. So the next 10 years after album I bought was one called Watt. And I remember I got it at a discount at a at a, at a local store in a cutout bin or something, and I brought it home and was excited about having the purchase and and having spent so little on it, and I put it on, and the whole first side was a complete disappointment. It just was not good 10 years after, in my opinion. I flipped it over, and I said, well, there's got to be something on the second side, right? First song on the second side, second song, no, they all stunk, and there's one song left on the album. The last song on the album is Sweet Little Sixteen by Chuck Berry. It's a cover, and I'm figuring, how can they screw up Sweet Little Sixteen? Well, the song comes on, and it just blew the doors off my bedroom. It's the best version of Sweet Little Sixteen I've ever heard. It was recorded at live at the Isle of Wight Festival, and it must have been recorded by a film crew or something because it has a very muddy sound. But that's part of its charm, because it really has this raucous, blistering sound to it. Uh, and it's one of my favorite Ten Years After songs, and they've never been able to repeat it in other live performances. It's just a, a great song. So... 10 years after, what? But just for Sweet Little Sixteen is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.